So that song that they just uh, ended with there, it's, um, I don't believe it's just a song. I really feel like it's a prophetic declaration over uh, us as a people. And it speaks to uh, many different things like promises and waiting. And I think that's really important for us right now because every single one of us can identify that we have been in a waiting period if we're not in one right now. And uh, sometimes that doesn't look as good as we romance it to be. And I know for uh, my wife and I, and my family, we are in a particular set of circumstances, a scenario that is not very favorable right now. We would love to exit quickly as possible uh, with our current circumstances. They don't feel good, and they're poor at best. But what I've come to realize is that uh, my perspective has changed on it some. And since my perspective has changed, then my attitude and my behavior towards our current situations has changed as well. And the way that that has happened is like, I know the specific promises that God has made to me and my wife uh, over the past several years. Like there have been people who have given us prophetic words and those words have matched up with what scripture has says. And so they've been confirmed in our life. And even though those particular promises are not evident in our life, as a matter of fact, sometimes it feels, feels like our situation and our scenarios are uh, the exact opposite of taking us to what has been promised to us. Um, I can still behave and act and be obedient uh, to the Father. And the reason I can do that is because I've realized something. God's word says that endurance builds character. And to be the man, like the man who I am right now in this second is not the person who is going to be stewarding those promises because they are very grand promises that the Lord has spoken over us. But I know that the season that I'm in right now, a season of endurance, is developing the character that I need to steward those promises. Right on? Anybody with me? Been there before? So the God... He's doing something great. But I have not always had this attitude. I have been on the other side of it where I've experienced like such stress that I've, I've never had migraines before. But like over the past month or so, I've developed like this pain in the back of my head and it like runs down into my back between my shoulder blades. It's like almost debilitating. I have gotten up in the wee hours of the morning to take my morning shower of hopelessness. I've been short with my wife and my kids and my friends and other family. And if that layer of frustration doesn't go deep enough, there's a second layer because I'm a firm believer that our circumstances and our situations uh, should not dictate the way that we feel or the way that we behave. And so I'm in this rock and a hard place of like, I believe this. And even though I believe that, my behavior is contradicting what I believe. So there's like an added layer of junk. But fortunately where I am now is I understand. I didn't see the endurance period before. I just created a pity party and sent out a bunch of invitations. And when no one showed up, I figured it was time to change.
So there's a little bit of a process uh, that I feel like that I went to. I don't know or believe that it's a cookie-cutter process, uh, and I don't think that there's a time stamp on it for the way or how or why that it happens. But I want to get into this morning, and the, the word of the Lord this morning, guys, it's quick. It's a quick word. You know why? Because God honors simplicity, and we complicate the crud out of everything. So I'm going to say what I need to say, and then we're going to do what we need to do. Amen? Yes. Here we go. So, I think what started this process was uh, Psalm 4610. It's a very familiar psalm. Everyone in here can probably quote the way that it goes. It says, be still and know that I am God. What this is saying, it's saying something very specific. Be still says... It means to weaken oneself. And to know means to become acquainted with. So what God is saying, he's saying, weaken yourself and become acquainted with who I am. In other words, he's saying, if you'll stop trying to fix this on your own, out of your own ability and your own strength, and become acquainted with me, then I will show you, not how to do it, but how I'm going to do it. You see, it's a promise that is freeing us of our ability to have an impact on our circumstances. Because most of the time, our circumstances are a result of ourselves. So thinking that we are going to change it is not the way that God sees it. And if we want something to change, then we need to see something the way that God sees it. So that's how it all started. Be still. Know that I'm God. Hey, quit messing it up so I can fix it. And what happens is, you know, like when you become acquainted with God, when you start to like really know God, it's hard to know God and not know what he's done for you. Those things are a partnership. It's synonymous. Knowing God and knowing how he showed up in your life are synonymous. They run parallel. And so what happens is when you take the time to stop, to be still and really know God, to become acquainted with God, he starts taking you back. He's like, yeah, this is how I healed your heart from this loss. This is how I showed up and provided for you during this time of tragedy. This is how I loved you when it seemed like there was no one else around to do that. This is how I led you when you didn't think that you had the wisdom to make the right decision. And what you start to develop is this thing called testimony. It's almost a lost art. We think that what makes good ministry is to train people to be ministers to share God's word. But your testimony is ten times more powerful than anything that me or Brent or Scott could ever say from this stage. And it's something that's deep-rooted in the presence of the Father. 
In fact, there's a historic event. He set a bush on fire. And his voice came out of it. And he spoke to this guy, Moses. He said, Moses, it's time to put our people on the map. I have a piece of real estate that's real nice. I've picked it out for them. We're going to call it the promised land. And what I want you to do is I want you to go into Egypt where all your brothers and your sisters and your family and your neighbors are enslaved right now. And I need you to talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let the nation of Israel go. And if he doesn't, then I'm pulling out all the stops. Some bad things are going to happen. So people are hard-headed. It took Pharaoh's son dying to finally come to a breaking point. And then his people were released. And so Moses took over a million people and they start to head toward the promise that God had made them. Through the wilderness, through the desert, they had to go through a waiting period to get to the things that God had promised them. But during this time, God made one of the first promises he made with mankind He said, if you do this for me, Moses, then my presence will always be with you. And Moses realized then that he was the one who God wanted to be with. And that is a promise that we all fall under. We are the ones that the Father wants to be with. And time and time and time again, he is constantly fulfilling that promise in our lives through our testimony. And so Moses is leading these people through the desert. God says, I'm going to make good on my promise. There's some contingencies that have to be in place. First, I need a special place to meet you. There's a big giant tent with multiple layers called the tabernacle. You can read about that in Exodus 26. God comes to Moses. He gives him like very specific details, blueprints on what the tabernacle was supposed to look like. It says, Moses, not only do I need a special place to meet you, but I also need a special place to sit when I show up. And in Exodus 25, you can read it there. He talks about this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And again, he gives Moses some very specific details as to what this is supposed to look like. He says, Moses, he tells him a special kind of wood. You need to take this wood and you need to build a box. And you need to cover it in gold. Then you need to take a hammer and you need to hammer that gold into the shape of a cherubim on each side facing each other. You need to make two gold rings. Four actually. Two on one side, two on the other. You need to take some poles and cover them in gold. And you need to put them through the holes so that you can carry this thing. Never take the poles out. On top, I need you to build a seat and lay it in gold. It's called the mercy seat. And on that, you need to take two cherubims and make them face each other. And this is where I will come, and my presence will rest on top of this, and I'll speak to you there. But he says something really interesting in Exodus 25 and verse 16 when he's giving Moses the schematics to build this. He actually says it twice in that chapter. He says, I'll give you the testimony to put in the box, and that's where I'll meet with you. So did you catch that? The presence of God rests on the testimony. Can someone say amen? Amen. The presence of God rests on your testimony. 
If you ever need to wonder where God is, all you need to do is start telling people how he showed up for you. So they build this. The presence of God shows up. They put a testimony inside of it. Here's what the testimony was at that time. Three things. They put the Ten Commandments in there. It's the first promise that God made with mankind about his unconditional presence always being among us. The second thing they put in there was Aaron's staff. So Aaron was Moses' brother. And at the time, the whole nation of Israel, through this journey, they were questioning, is this really the person that we uh, should have leading us? And so to test this, really to test God and what he had promised them, they took Aaron's staff, which was just a branch off of an almond tree. And they found 11 other people in the nation while they were on this journey, and they took their staffs as well. I don't know what theirs were made out of. But they take them all, and they put them in this place, and they left them overnight. And they showed back up the very next day, and out of all 12 of the staffs, they grabbed Aaron's, and his had a bloom on it. Like it wasn't attached to the tree still. It was just dead stick. And it bloomed. And there was a little cluster of almonds on it. And it was a testimony to say that God would always provide leadership to his people when they needed it. And so they put it in the box. The third thing was a jar of manna. And so on this journey, when you're escaping captivity, you don't exactly have a whole lot of time to pack up all your stuff. It's not like you're going to Disney and you're taking your whole house with you for a couple weeks. It's like you're going to be gone for who knows how long. And if I don't leave now, then I might end up still being a slave to Israel. So grab your kid and let's go. So they're in the middle of the desert. They're making their way to the promise that God had promised them. And he does something supernatural for them. Over 40 years, their clothes and their shoes don't wear out. That's pretty phenomenal. So not only that, they obviously didn't pack up any food on their way out. So every morning when they woke up, there was this bread-like substance on the ground. They call it manna. And they were instructed very specifically to only eat, or only gather what they could eat for that day. I think that was very intentional as well. Typically, we try to save stuff up. If they tried to save it, then it would, when they would wake, wake up the next morning, it would actually be rotting and like full of worms and maggots and stuff. So on Friday, they had a special contingency. They could actually gather for two days because Saturday was the Sabbath and they weren't supposed to do any work. And so they put this jar of manna in the ark as the third piece of God's testimony that provision and rest have always been part of the plan. And so, I don't know if you guys know this or not. I'm sure you do. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. There's one guy who claimed to find it. Nobody believes him. He has no pictures or evidence. But it's gone. So does that mean the presence of the Lord is gone too? Does that mean that the Lord's testimony is gone? No, because he knew that it was time to get out of the box. 
He knew that it was time to change. He didn't want his testimony confined to one little object. He wanted to do something supernatural to where he took his testimony and he put it in people. Instead of a box laid with gold. And as a matter of fact, before he even made this happen, he prophesied about it through the prophet Jeremiah in verse 31, 33. It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He's talking about after Jesus. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's talking about a new upgraded promise, a new upgraded testimony. God's presence unconditionally among us. Thankful and thank you to his son Jesus made that possible. A new promise of leadership, a king that would die to come and take every sin of every one of us. A new promise of provision, Jesus' replacement on the earth, which is the Holy Spirit. And no longer do we have to rely on rituals and boxes to experience the presence of the Lord. He's put a testimony inside every single one of us. And every time we talk about what the God has done for us in our lives, it, his, he perks up. He can't help but show up. He can't help to be around you and on you. And for people who are around you who are experiencing such great hopelessness, your testimony starts to wake up something that's in them. Everyone has a capacity for hope. Most of us walk around with it empty. That starts to wake up. In Proverbs it says, hope deferred makes a heart sick, but a promise fulfilled is the tree of life. Most of the time our hope is deferred because we can't even see the promise that God has made to us. We think the promise that God has made to us is us in the wilderness. Could you imagine what would happen to Israel if they would have walked into the desert and they would have come to believe, oh, well, this must be what God, the promised land that God had given us. Don't mistake the waiting period for the promise. Don't mistake the endurance period for the promise. Embrace the endurance period so that you can have the character for the promise that God has given you. So the story continues. There's a strong partnership between testimony and another element. And the reason I want to educate folks on this today is that these two particular tools are incredibly useful for shifting the atmosphere in your home, in your workplace, in your school, no matter where you are. Anybody can walk into a bad atmosphere. It takes a spiritual warrior to change it. And every single one of you are called to the front. Don't go to the back. So the story continues... Moses has taken the nation of Israel as far as he could go. 
he has a um, young fellow that he is, that's his aide. The Bible describes him as Moses' aide. His name is Joshua. Joshua has a friend named Caleb. Just a couple young bucks. But they have been tasked with um, the opportunity to take ten other folks from the nation and go into the nation that uh, they were supposed to take over. This promised land. They had finally made it. There it is, right in front of their faces. And so all 12 of them, they go in to spy, to see if the land was really as the way that God had described it. Is this really the promise that God has set before us? And so all 12 of them go in, they take their reports, they stay there for a couple of days, and they come back. And so Joshua and Caleb, they come back and they say, yes, the land is exactly the way that God had promised it. It looks just like he said it would. So let's go and let's take it. The other ten guys say, the land is full of obstacles. Giants. There are are things that stand in the way of this promise that God has made us. And we do not have the ability to obtain it. Anytime we think that is fully dependent on us to walk into something that God has promised us, we usually don't obtain it. So as you keep reading on, this is in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. What you'll notice is that Joshua and Caleb and all of their ancestors and the generation below them, they all rise up and they actually go in and take the land. They actually obtain the very thing that God had promised them. So the other ten guys and the rest of the nation, everyone who believed them, who were connected to them, their families, they actually journeyed up into a mountain and died there. They never walked into the promise that God had given them. The contingency on obtaining God's promises or not is being able to see his promises the way that he sees them. Being able to grab on to God's promises is being able to see things the way that he sees them. There's a, little, there, there's a way to do that. We talked about it a little bit earlier in Psalm 46.10. Be still and be with God. There's something that actually happens during that time. I was just having a conversation earlier with a friend of mine about how unproductive it feels to be with the Lord. But just like I said earlier, it has nothing to do with your ability or how good you are at something. Whether you're the worst Christian or you're a mega Christian, it doesn't qualify you or disqualify you from its promises. But you can miss it if you don't see it the way that he sees it. And so what he wants to do when you're spending time with him, you're actually living out a scripture. A scripture that's in Romans 12, chapter 2. Something else that we're very familiar with. It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. 
The more time you spend with God, the more you start to think like him. It's a transformation. You thought like you, and now you're thinking like him. And when you're thinking like him, then you can see like him. And there's your promise. You can get it. You're not blinded by your circumstances that are keeping you from the promise. You see the promise. And even though it feels like your circumstances are pulling you away from it, you see things the way that God does, and you're actually, everything that the enemy tries to use against you actually propels you forward closer to what God has promised you. That is an unnatural thing. That's a foreign concept. But the spirit of religion has given us an earthly logic. And we try to process if it's logistical, if it works out, if it makes sense, then it works. But if it doesn't, then we feel like we need to change our course or our direction. Our hopelessness starts to set in and we just don't see any way that we can obtain the promises of the Father. And that's just backwards from the way it works in the kingdom. So, change the way you think, change the way you see. It's not just changing the way that you see from one human thought pattern to another. It's transcending above that and being able to see things the way that God sees them. So, I'm going to start to, I'm going to, start to land the plane on this. <clears throat> because all of this seems like a process, and with any process, there's like steps, things that you have to do, right? Well, there is one thing. And so to understand testimony, to partner your testimony with the power of God's promise, which is called declaration, when you have a testimony and you use Scripture as God's promise to prove how he showed up in your life, that's called a declaration, and it changes. It supernaturally starts to change your circumstances. In other words, if someone has a testimony where they defeated depression, and they come up here and they share that, and they share some scripture, then automatically something is released in the room, and anyone who's struggling with depression, it starts to do something. It's really powerful. So there's one small contingency on promise and testimony and perspective. And it's your willingness to do this. In the previous verse, in Romans 12, it says, I appear to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So everything that I'm speaking to you now is a testimony in my own life. My own life. It's not just theory or a good idea to preach. It's what I've been walking through. And so I ask God, I say, what does that mean? What is a living sacrifice? And he simplifies it for me because I'm not the brightest tool, brightest bulb in the box. 
He says, uh, well, what does a sacrifice do? I was like, well, it just gets up on the altar and it lays there. It doesn't do anything. He's like, yeah, now we're getting somewhere. It doesn't do anything. The whole point of it is to get consumed. And after it's done being consumed, the only thing that's left is the Father. Just like earlier, we mentioned the burning bush. The bush was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. But the fire needed to burn anything up that wasn't God so that only God could come out of it. It was just his voice that came out of that bush. Everything else was burned up. So I really started to understand this uh, after I had a dream. What is a living sacrifice? So in this dream, I was sitting in a diner. And I was across the table from what physically looked like um, my dad, my real dad, and uh, which is ironic for so many reasons. But I knew in the dream that even though it looked like my biological dad, what he represented was my heavenly father. And so I was saying to him, I said, I'm here to present myself to you. I want to offer myself to you as a living sacrifice. And... Um, I said, this is my role. And I was just, in the dream, it was like I was like physically handing these things over. I said, this is my role as a husband. He said, that's not enough. I said, well, here is my role as a father. He said, that's not enough. I said, here's my role as a minister and all the ministry that comes along with it. That's not enough. Here's my role as a friend and a sibling, as a contributor to the society that you created. He said, that's not enough. So in the dream, I'm getting frustrated. I'm thinking to myself, well, I've given you everything I've got. Like literally, the only thing that's left is me and you sitting here at this table. Just this flesh suit. No roles, no nothing. And so he smiles and he leans across the table and he says, that's enough. The whole idea of being a living sacrifice is being so consumed by the love of the Father that it burns out any impurities that is within us. Anything that God did not put there gets burned up we're only effective when God is the only thing that is operating in us that's the starting place a living sacrifice then comes testimony then comes promise comes perspective it comes spiritual authority to take territory 
that was the enemies. Everything that God has promised us is out there. The enemy likes to occupy it. But things like testimony and promise are the things that drive the enemy out. Make him powerless. Take away his influence. You're going to see God's promise the way that he sees it. Not occupied by the enemy.